0: Hello there and welcome to or welcome back to Up My Hockey with Jason Podolan. I am Jason Podolan and today we have another amazing guest on the show and his name is Trevor Latowski. Trevor is a 600 game NHL veteran for teams like the Vancouver Canucks, Phoenix Coyotes, Columbus Blue Jackets and Carolina Hurricanes. He also spent some time in the KHL as well as the Swiss A-League and before he got into uh, his NHL career he spent some time in the minors with the Springfield Falcons. So we cover all that, including his time in Sarnia uh, with the Sarnia Sting of the OHL coming up through junior his draft year. We cover his uh, participation in the World Junior Championships where he won a gold medal in 1997 and also his coaching career. when He's been behind the bench now in the OHL for 10 seasons either as a head coach or an assistant coach with Sarnia now the very, very successful Windsor Spitfires. Trevor is in the midst of a really successful campaign. His team is ranked in the top 10 in the CHL. He is widely respected throughout the game uh, as a great coach, as a great players coach, as somebody who's really embracing this new age coaching philosophy that seems to be taking over. And uh, he was just an all-round amazing guy to talk to. Uh, very, very, very generous with his time. Uh, he spoke to us at the at the Windsor Arena there after practice, and I really enjoyed this conversation. And for any of you out there, whether you're a parent or whether you're a player, uh, Trevor offers a lot of insights about becoming a player, uh, what it takes to be a player in today's game, and uh, and how he goes about trying to help players uh, reach the reach the best of their ability. So, without further ado, I will bring you my interview with Trevor Litowski. Well, here we have Trevor Litowski. Trev, Lutz, thanks so much for joining me. Um, what an honor to have you on the, on the line here. Um, gonna start off with a little trivia for you, Lutz. Um, <laughs> I love one of my favorite parts about doing this is like the the background uh, little investigative work I get to do. So yeah.
1: you were a seventh round pick of
0: Phoenix, yeah. um, 174th overall. Went on to play 616 games as a 5'10, 170 pound centerman. At least that's what it was said in your, that's what I said in the yearbook. And it was and, about, uh, yeah. it wasn't an accomplishment. But the trivia part of this whole thing is you are the second most games played out of anyone drafted from that position. So from anyone ever drafted, 174th overall in the NHL draft, you played the second most games of anyone who played. Yeah. Four guys ever to play 100 games from that spot. So huge testament for you to play 100 games.
2: That exact number, 174?
0: Yeah, 174. Okay. That exact number, 174. But there was one guy to play more than you, and you know him. And he he was a Portland Pirate when you were in Springfield. And he went on to, obviously, an awesome career. Who do you think that guy is?
2: He played in the American League when I was there?
0: He played in the American League when you were there. He was their top point guy. Next year, he had a little bit of a taste in the NHL. Came down again for half a season. And then no one ever saw him again because he was in the show for 1,110 games.
2: Oh, man. Was he a Canadian guy?
0: First name, Andrew.
2: Burnett?
0: Yes. Yes. Isn't that wild?
2: I shouldn't have needed that hint though.
0: I should have got that. <laughs> no, I was like laughing at that. Oh my God, those two guys. Like what, a, what an interesting connection to have. But yeah, so you played eleven hundred games. You played six hundred and sixteen. There's only eight guys ever from that uh, from that draft position to have even played a game in the NHL. So um, we are gonna get into that a little bit because I want to recognize that fact. I mean, you played in the nineties, you weren't a big guy. Um, you weren't a high draft pick. Um ended up getting there. Ended up getting there for a real long time. So I think that's really cool. And I wanna to touch on that. Um, but I wanna back up even a little bit more, Lutz. Where how did you end up in Sarnia? And if I got it right, you were a 17 year old in Sarnia, your first year you didn't play as a 16 year old? Okay. And um, so how did you end up there? Like, I know the draft, it only existed back then. At least in WHL, it didn't exist then. Was, was, was there an OHL draft w- w- when you went? Yeah,
2: there, there was a draft back then in the Ontario League, yeah. It was, uh, Thunder Bay was a unique location, though, because it was so far west, northwest in the province of Ontario. And most of the players that are older than me, if you look, that a lot of the guys that end up playing pro – um, did not play in the OHL. They actually took the U.S. college route. Uh, at the time, the Thunder Bay team had a team in the USHL, uh, the Thunder Bay Flyers, which was a great program. It produced a lot of great players out of Thunder Bay. And the OHL was um, a little bit reluctant to draft players from Thunder Bay for that reason. They just wouldn't show up. Right. And so my midget year, we had a good team. And um, we did real well. We didn't end up winning anything major, but we were one of the better teams in the province. And we ended up having about eight guys drafted. And I think six of us ended up going to the OHL and actually playing. And it, to be honest, I think it's kind of started the wave of players kind of started to migrate out of Thunder Bay a little bit and going the, the major junior route instead of the NCAA route. But right. for me, as a small, a small player who was a pretty good student, I um, certainly... I kind of thought I was going to be a guy that played in the USHL, a Thunder Bay Flyer. And, you know, I, a couple like Greg Johnson, for instance, was my, basically my idol growing up. And um, he's a player that was a legend in Thunder Bay, played for the Thunder Bay Flyers, went on to North Dakota. And a lot of people know what he, what he did in his career and, and stuff like that. So it was a little bit outside of the box for me to, to go play in starting. I was drafted fairly late in the eighth round. They drafted us late. I was probably should have been a little bit higher than that, but because they were worried about guys not showing up, we would slip in the draft a little bit.
1: Right,
0: right. Yeah, I know. Fair enough. Um, let's touch on that just for for a little bit, even that decision, because I remember myself uh, played in Penticton for the Panthers. That was Paul Correa was there. I was 15 years old. Um and you mean we have these dreams and these goals and mine was to play in the nhl it wasn't necessarily to get a college scholarship right and i was like okay quickest path how do i get there um where's my draft year going to be right all these things would have been like my third year would have been in the bcj right like getting drafted out of there and um it just to me it didn't seem to make sense right um i was a good student as well my mom was really pro pro academia um and it was, a, it was kind of a tough decision. that I think is super unfair for a guy who's 15 or 16 years old to even have to make, but we won't even touch on that with those NCAA rules. But how does that, how did that go with you? Like how, how, how did you make that decision? Cause like you said, in that day and age, you know, geez, we're talking a while ago now, right? Like smaller guys that had skill went to college and Bear guys who had the quicker pace probably to, to or thought they did to the show would go major junior and and you and you opted out of that you know like the the, the funnel I guess.
2: Yeah no I, I think it was it was one of those things where the, the the guy that drafted me was the assistant general manager he stayed in touch with me right after the draft until training camp uh, when I got drafted eighth round, it wasn't a big day for me for our family we were kind of okay maybe We'll go to training camp, but it wasn't like a dream to play in the OHL. That was for sure, kind of similar yeah. to what you were saying. Um, but it was that one. It, his name was Terry Dorn. Actually, he's still in hockey. He's scouting for the Calgary Flames right now. But Terry, kind of, uh, he really liked me. He he thought I could play on the team, even coming out of the eighth round. He so I I so I just I, I went to Sarnia with an open mind. Um, I had a good training camp, and things just went went real quickly. I think that having my knowledge now sitting here today and going through it and what the odds were of me actually end up playing 600 games in HL like I probably knowing what I know now and I probably if it's my son he probably not staying there you know and I think at the time and it's a big difference the Canadian Hockey League now is has come so far since the late 90s as far as what they provide their players with education packages right. like on our team here in Windsor and the Ontario Hockey League For every year of service, they get at least a a full year's tuition and books, and and that wasn't the case back then. I mean, depending on when you were drafted, like my education package was was not good. You know, you could make an argument; it's a lot tougher decision now than I, I would say it was back then. I, you know, it ended up working out for me, but I saw so many players that that made the mistake, and the education package was like one one-fifth of a year of tuition or something like that. It was –
1: Right.
2: And guys would play a couple of games in the league and and be shipped out, and they give up a full ride to to a big school in the U.S. So, yeah. It is it's a very tough decision for – especially back then because there was so much at stake. Now I think you can't go wrong. If you can play on the in the Canadian Hockey League, it's a great option because you're kind of protected with that education package as it is today. But it wasn't like that um, –
0: Yeah. I agree. That's a, that's a big, that's a big deal today because as you know, I mean, I'm all about with what I do now. I know it's what you do. Like we get paid to support dreams essentially, right? Like we we want guys to reach their dreams and and the more that do it, the better job we're doing. And uh, so I, I, I I don't like being the guy who's like, you know, the odds of you doing this are, you know, minuscule, like who cares, right? Yeah, it's hard. But you I mean, the thing is the reality of it is, there is going to be an option when you got that degree when then you can be the lawyer you can be the doctor you can be a you know a, a great upstanding member of the community um either you know because you don't make it or even post hockey right everyone's got to do something after they're done regardless of what of what how much money you've made right you there's something that you need to do something you need to be of yeah. service so um yeah so having that university is great and it's awesome now that these junior guys these major junior guys are going to have that option leaving major junior without a pro contract wondering what to do at least they can go to school and i think that's that's the service that the OHL did, the WHL, the DQ did to these guys. Not necessarily any favorites from the NCAA, but um, again, th- those those rules I think should change. But um, so you're 17, you go to Sarnia. Um, just by the way, a little footnote. I uh, I was roommates with Aaron Brand. I don't even really remember that name. Yeah,
1: yeah. So X.
0: Ex- yeah, there. Oh, you so see, you did play with him. I didn't check out the Sarnia the Sarnia database, but he had a good year there with you guys too. Had a hundred points, I think, or something, and uh, came came played with us in St. John. So Brando, if you ever hear this, uh, good to good to see you again. Um. So yeah, so Sarnia's Sarnia thing. So you have your 17 year old year. You have not a bad year, um, which was your NHL draft year, correct? That was your first year to be eligible.
2: Yeah, back then, remember you could opt—you uh, could opt in or opt out of the draft. It was a real strange few years there where you actually had an option. Uh, it was weird. Yeah. Interesting. Was of, there wasn't a lot of players that opted out, but I was one of them. Uh, with my agent at the time, uh, he just felt I, I was coming up like my place on the team. I was going to be in a good position to put up some points in my next year, and so I actually opted out of that first year. I. I don't know if I would have been drafted anyways, but yeah, right. I just it out, and then so now my draft year became the, the year after as an.
0: HR. Awesome! What a brilliant move. That, that sounded great because you did. I mean, you, I mean, I think you was was it ninety nine points your draft year.
2: Yeah, so I had ninety nine. Yeah.
0: Yeah, ninety nine. I'm sure that didn't bother you at all. Eh, not to get to hundred.
2: You know what? I got a quick funny story about that. I had 98 points going into the last game of the year. And of wow. course, the coach wants to set you up to get to the 100. And I got an assist early in the game, and I was so excited. I had 99 points. I had about 55 minutes to play. So I think I'm going to get it right. And then uh, late in the first period, I it was actually, uh, I think it was Brian Berard. Um, he was carrying a puck, and I went to go lift his stick, and, and I caught him. And it was a high-sticking penalty and I got kicked out of the game it was a- oh no yeah,
1: so I got
0: booted so- oh. Yeah. oh that's awful so yeah it wasn't even on you that's funny well since you went down that road I'll tell you a funny story for me too so my my fourth year my fourth year with the Chiefs um played their 16 17 18 19 uh right and then and so my last year there I was chasing down I think it was Pat Falloon's Pat Faloon's all-time career uh, chief goal-scoring record, right? Yeah. So I was pretty hot at the end and I was getting close and um, I needed a hat trick to uh, to beat him, two to tie him in the last game. We were playing Prince George, which was the doghouse of the league at that, at that time, right? They were just no good. Actually, well, they, it was actually Victoria, but anyways, neither here nor there. And... Um, so, and, and like Babs, ba- I had Babcock too at the time, right? So Babs was always about, like, he's still kind of that way now he gets ridden for. Like, he doesn't play Matthews enough or he doesn't play Marner enough, right? Like, he just kind of was all about equality-ish, you know? Like, so me being my fourth year there, he never really played me a ton. I was first line power play, yeah, but it wasn't like I was out there all the time, right? I played probably 18, 20 minutes a game my last year, but that game, he played me, like... I don't know, like probably 30 minutes. I so I was out there all the time. And the guys were trying to set me up. So I scored a goal uh, first period. Uh, and then I just, like this goalie was just standing on his head. We had 77 shots on goal. I had 28 loots, 28 in a junior game. And I got one goal. Yeah, I got one goal. So I finished I finished one behind uh, Falloon and never did catch it. But anyway, isn't that wild? <laughs> that's crazy so anyways that's my that's my wrap up there but um yeah. so yeah so the draft how did you handle that now i know now you got guys you're handling that and i want to get into that like i want to talk about your career and then we'll get into you now as a coach and handling guys that are you know progressive and projected to be top 10 and i mean all the stuff that's surrounding that now that i don't think we really had to deal with at the time you know, sure there was the hockey news and sure mckenzie was still talking about guys but there wasn't the spotlight like there is now um. Do you remember going through that draft year and like any of the challenges you faced or any I don't know anything you had to deal with or go through?
2: Yeah, it, it was very challenging. It was it was probably the most adversity I, that I ever had as a, as a player. I would say because I had a really good year. I was an 18 year old. I was the captain of that team, um, arguably the best player on the team. And but and the team was good too. We ended up losing in the second round, but we were probably good enough to win. We were we were a good team in the Ontario League, and so we ended up having it's either six or seven players were drafted from the Sarnia Sting that year. Wow. Actually the last player drafted. Oh, you know, we had a couple, we had a first rounder. We had a, we had a second rounder and we had a bunch of guys in between. So it was a really long day. It was, it was one of those days and everyone has their story with the draft. I'm sure. Um, But for me, I was rated much higher than when I was drafted. I was rated, I think 60th overall. Like, I don't know if that included the Europeans or not, but regardless, it was significantly higher than 174. Right. Uh, And I, of course you did, I did my interviews. I I didn't speak to every team, but a a handful of teams. I had a good feeling. uh, The draft was in St. Louis. Um, The whole family went down there and uh, it was, to be honest, just a a terrible day because it was all in the same day. It was a long day. It was near the end of the draft that I was picked. I think there was nine rounds at the time, but uh, still, it was still a long day. Um, and yeah, a disappointing day to go 174 um, and I think it, it did spark me and it gave me motivation to kind of to kind of prove people wrong um, after that. So, yeah,
0: no, good for you. So you're in the Don Cherry camp. He says if you're not a first rounder, you shouldn't go.
2: <laughs> I am. I am. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, the draft. I mean, yeah, I won't get into that. I'll tell you that over a beer sometimes, but um, my draft story is kind of similar. It wasn't, and I guess it's perspective too, right? But I think it's all set around expectations, right? Like what you think is going to happen or what you're told is going to happen. And then if something doesn't happen, that's like that. And it's worse. I mean, even though it's a great day because you were recognized as the top, whatever hockey player in the world, and you have an opportunity to go on, you're still disappointed. I mean, you're an 18 year old kid who had higher expectations and I totally understand where you're coming from. So,
1: um,
0: well, yeah, that ninety-nine points. So then, so so you want to get drafted? What, what was that conversation like with Phoenix at the time? Like, where? What, what did they did? Did they talk to you much? Did they did they let you know what they wanted from you or who they wanted you to become, or or was it just the typical phone call?
2: No, they, they were pretty good. Man. They they seemed to like. It was a year where they only had out of nine rounds. I think they only had six picks, and I think they only had two or three forwards. Ah, uh, their first rounder that year was Danny Briere, who was obviously a great NHL player, but a, a, another small centerman. But I think we were the only—I'm pretty sure we were the only two forwards that they drafted. You know, I think that you know maybe they—they're giving everybody love that because I mean, for the most part, if they drafted you know, at least someone went to Vancouver in the organization. But they seemed real happy to to draft me, and they felt that I was capable of playing someday. And um, you know, they—they they made me feel welcome and and excited to to be a part of that organization so i uh yeah i mean i i knew it was going to be an uphill battle no question kind of like getting drafted there and especially first training camp everyone that's been through that it's it's just so eye-opening to to see how much work you how far away you truly are right here in windsor with my players even the guys that aren't drafted guys get invites i'm so excited for them to go through that experience because um, we, we try to tell them and, and what it takes to be professional and the habits it takes and the consistency and the relentlessness that it takes to play at that level. But until they actually see it, you know, some of them it doesn't click in until they're actually around those players and they can see it and they come back like, geez, Lutz, you, were, you weren't kidding, you know? And I'm like, no, what do you think? I'm, I'm lying or why? Like, it's not right, scared, right. right? But I love that our players get those experiences. I, I feel every time they come back better.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was going to, yeah. So that was your experience, like, seeing, walking into camp. I don't know who was there at the time, probably Roanick, maybe Tockett, you know, where those those guys were there, and you're like, holy smokes, right? Yeah,
1: um, yeah and you
2: come in, and, you, and you're used to being a, a top-end player. You're a player that's on the first power play and a go-to guy and getting on the ice all the time, and you, you think you're, you're pretty good. I mean, you don't know any better. You don't know until you see it, right, and then all of a sudden you see – the, the talent of, of, of the third line player on the Coyotes that year, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm not ready, and it's you got a long ways to go. And, and that's it's kind of it's very eye opening, at least it was for me, as far as I'm not even close to playing at this level at that age. And, and I wasn't, it wasn't, it was the truth. I was so far away, there was so much more development that needed to happen for me to play at that level.
0: You you touched on it, I think that's an interesting point because, um growing up and there's a lot of guys that are, that are following me right now. They're, you know, 14, 15 years old and, and probably the best on their team, maybe the best in their organization. Uh, everybody's a goal scorer or the, you know, like that's what the best player on the team means at that age, right? That you score the most points. And so everyone identifies that as being a good player, but at some point not everyone can be the best player on their team, especially in the NHL. Right. So I think, I think, I f- think, I've seen at least that and I would like to have your opinion on this too. Like sometimes guys don't like hockey unless they can play it the way they want to play it. And they're not willing to adapt. You know what I mean? So unless they are that guy and I, I like hockey because I score goals, let's say, and now, okay, now you're a third liner. And that's where you are right now or this year. And you have to do this real well to maybe have that chance. Guys aren't willing to do that. do you, do you find that? the adaptability to be an issue sometimes?
2: Yeah, it is. I think that's the hardest thing, and I've seen it. I've been part of the World Junior team as a coach, and that's very interesting because it's a perfect example for what we're talking about. You're getting players now, they're playing at a high level. They're in the Canadian Hockey League. For the most part, every player on that World Junior team is the best player on their club team, but yet it's such a challenge for Hockey Canada to get a player to play well with only 10 or 12 minutes of ice. You know they—they're so used to being the top player, and, and I think that, that that goes for for every level you jump up. It's just—it it just gets significantly harder, and, and it—it's it, almost intangible that it's like it's almost I almost consider that almost a skill. Like it's—it comes from down deep that passion to just be a good. Just to be good today, you know, in the practice, and it, it just translates to the game. And all of a sudden, yeah, maybe you're getting your points or whatever. But you're continuing to get better. I think it's the almost the key to becoming an NHL player. And to go off of your point, sometimes if you're the best player on the team, doesn't mean that you can get to the next level, especially in the Canadian Hockey League. If you're the best player for the Windsor Spitfires, that does not mean you're going to play a thousand games in the NHL. Like you got to get going. You got to keep going. And be relentless,
1: yeah.
2: yeah. Improvement. And I tell young players all the time, like I'm sure you've played with them pods, uh, like guys that were I played with a guy that was when I was fifteen or fourteen, he was literally the best player in Ontario. And by the time he was seventeen, he wasn't even good enough to play in the OHL. Right. He was literally the best player in the province. And you yeah. can fizzle out so quickly. I think that the ability to push yourself to continue to get better, whether you're the best player on the team or Wherever you are on the team, as long as... And I think it, I think you can attest to this. As you get older, it gets harder and harder to continue to push and, and to, to get better, you know? And there's so many players that plateau. Some of them plateau at 15 years old. Some of them plateau at 18. Some of them don't plateau until 22. And usually that player that continues to get better till he's 22 is the player that ends up playing pro, you know?
1: Yeah.
2: It's, it's very rarely at least in my experience coaching in this league that, I mean, unless you're the top five pick in the like, the Sydney Crosby's and the Connor McDavid's, these players are one in a million, whatever. But if you're not a top 10 draft pick, like you have so far to go. And that's, I try to tell my players, like the kid, they, the draft, they get drafted now at 17. If you're not a first, second rounder, for the most part, you got about, you should have about a five-year plan. You still got five years of development before you're going to play at the National Hockey League level because most guys have got to play a year or two in the American League.
0: Yeah, and even those guys that make it got to keep thinking that they haven't
1: arrived, right? Think, as soon
0: as you think you are arrived, you're done.
2: Exactly. It's yeah. so true, and I think that's the hardest thing to teach these players. I know we're going off a little bit with, with the coaching side, but it's just the, the, the players, they, they don't know. I find like they don't know how hard it is sometimes, and they have been the best player, and... Um, it's a little bit of an issue I would say in Canadian hockey nowadays is these players are so young and they're getting agents at young ages and, and there's so much development and so much cost. And I think that's a huge issue in Canada now to be an elite player at a younger age. I think when me and you were coming up, we played AAA hockey and then we played baseball in the summer. and You know, it wasn't such a commitment from the whole family. And now yeah. I feel that's a big issue, at least it is in Ontario and in the GTA the kids coming out of there, if you want to be elite, you're going to uh, all this extra stuff for hockey in the off-season, skill development stuff, and stick handling, and there's so much built into it, and sometimes they get a little adversity, and they can't handle that when they get into higher levels with the OHL.
0: Well, I hear you. And I think the interesting thing is, is like what you're talking about there, and I know we are going off in a little bit of a tangent, but that's all right, we can do what we want. Um, the, uh, like the skills that aren't getting, to, like, like how about on ice skills of like, you I mean, we just talked about it. So even you went through it. I went through it. I was the best player on my AHL team, professional team. I shouldn't say best player. Lonnie Mahanas was, there were some other really good players there, but I had the most goals on that team that year. Let's say yeah. that. Right. Yeah. Um, but then you get your chance in the NHL and that's not my role in the NHL as a right line, a right, right winger there to go score 40 in the NHL. When I first get called up playing 10 minutes a game, my role is to get the puck off the wall and get it out of the zone and maybe go hit somebody on the forecheck check and get the hell off the ice. Right. And if I haven't adapted my brain to knowing how to do that, or even really knowing how to do that, well, right. Like I am now not really giving myself the opportunity to do what I do best at that next level right so I think that's like that connection too right it's like not everybody's going to play in the power play right so how are you going to get the opportunity to play in the power play you got to be good at something else right
2: it's so true I think that I think it's a little bit different now I would say because when we came up it was very uh you knew your role there was that fourth line player that only played eight minutes and that guy had to be a tough guy or a guy that could Win a faceoff, or could kill a penalty, and the third line guy had to be an energy guy and kind of a pest kind of guy, and then the top two line guys were expected to score. I think the game is changing. I think in the right way now. Yeah. Whereas most players, and it's kind of the World Junior model now for for Canada, where they they want everyone to provide skill and everyone can score. Everyone's not going to play 20 minutes, of course, but at least you don't have to just just defend if you're a third line. You're not a like the third line checker is kind of leaving the game, you know. I would yes. say. Whereas when we were coming through, you you needed to do that, or else right. you're not playing at all. Yeah. Now it's a little bit different, and it's sure. a good thing.
0: I, yeah, yeah. No, which is interesting too, because even you saying that, and this will be another tangent, but I find that the, def- like the defensive side of the puck is not nearly as good as it used to be. Like watching in games, even at the NHL level, like D-Zone coverage to me blows my mind. Like where guy, everyone's watching the puck and there's guys, it's just like, I just don't even get it anymore. But maybe that's part of it too, right? Everyone's just been so taught that you know what I mean for so long that it's about skill and it's about skill and it's about skill and individual skill and moving the puck and like there's not much time left for coaching how much time do you spend on D zone and coaching that aspect of the game that side of the puck
2: well we we do like we we're getting away from structure a little bit and we're just teaching like concepts and, and habits and uh and basically habits as far as the def- on the defensive side of the puck so not so much like a sit a concrete system of like a one two two even on a neutral zone or something but we, we teach like cutting routes and being on top of pucks and providing puck pressure if you're the closest guy to the puck. If not, you're kind of falling in underneath it and you're on top of the puck. And we were teaching every day like the habits of how to check about stick on puck. And if you're inside position, getting under under the hands and things like yeah. that. Yeah. And I feel like that it, it works, you know, like if, if you have one player... Providing puck pressure and everyone else is on the D side of the puck, then you got a good opportunity to kind of disrupt something, and and create a loose puck and then transition it and go play on offense. You know, so the the game is certainly less structured. You know, I agree, but there's so much. It's so it's played so differently offensively now. With it's basically almost like a five five men rotation of of creating offense. You know, where
1: it's
2: he standing at the blue line. Offensive zone, low to high, D to D, get a shot down Now Those players are kind of interchangeable and so active and it causes a lot of confusion.
1: Yeah, it's fun
0: to watch. There really yeah. is an aspect of fun to watch. Um, so let's, let's get back to, so uh, your your last year there, you have another real strong year and you talked about World Junior, you talked about your World Junior experience as a coach, but you had it as a player too. Um, and you also talked about Danny Breer, which is so... Coincidental, because um, I actually I've interviewed him on on, on this podcast as well, and um, so we'll talk about your experience with Danny. But how was that whole part of being Canada's national team and and experiencing what that was all about? I feel like there's like a fraternity of us that have had the the pleasure and the honor of being able to do that, and, and and you guys won gold too. I think it was the fifth gold medal in a row that you guys were a part of. Correct? Correct.
2: Yes. Yeah. Were the one before?
0: Yeah, before? I was the one before.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, but yeah, it's just it's honestly it's like a highlight of of my life you know when you're able to win a championship uh, with a group like that and uh, Hockey Canada does such a great job of bringing you together people that haven't been through it it's hard to understand how close you you truly become you know in that month you have a few weeks in the summer and then the month together at Christmas and those relationships I still have to this day and I'm sure you do too yeah Yeah,
0: I know 100% it's uh... (laughs) a Yeah, it's it's a real, real galvanizing thing, right? I mean, it's it's crazy going through it um, to come out on the right end of the stick, you know, and, and to be able to to have that gold medal, which is sitting right here behind me on this wall, um, is pretty special. And uh, and again, I mean, I, I had a shorter career than you did, but I mean, I've talked to a lot of guys that have gone through that, and it's like it, it, it's tough to, to to surpass it unless unless you've won like an Olympics or like a, or like a Stanley Cup. It's like it's one of the top things that a guy's ever done, right?
2: No question about it. I've shared that with my players. I would say, like, if there's, I have two of my best memories in hockey. That is one of them. My other one is my first NHL game, just what I shared with my family. And that, I'll never forget that moment. It was basically not even on the ice, but just the phone call home. You know, that, you know, it's just, there's so much that went into that phone call. So, for me, it's my first NHL game, and that World Junior Gold Medal trumps, Almost any memory I have uh, from National Hockey League, those 600 games, because we won, you know, and I think yeah. that championship feeling that you just, it's something that, that you never forget. It's so pure and especially at that level, there's no money, there's, it, but it's just, it just means so much and it's down on the, the soul, you know.
0: Yeah, no, it's awesome. Super cool. Any memories of, of Babson, I meaning Mike Babcock? I know he was your head coach there uh, for that one. Um, I think Larson, Brad Larson, who, Dewey, what a weird connection because he was another guy I've interviewed now, assistant coach for the, uh, for the Blue Jackets. He was on your team there as well. I think I'm going to give the whole entire 1997 team there uh, before we're all done. But uh, what are your memories of, of Babson? Any, anything that sticks out or do you think he was going to be on, going on destined for, uh, you know, the career that he's had as a head coach?
2: Yeah. You felt it. There's a presence to Babs. I mean, have you, do you know him? I mean, he played, I played for him in Spokane. Football? Yeah. Exactly. So I'm sure you can attest to it, but he, there's a presence to Babs. There's an intensity to him, uh, kind of all the time that he's just, there's, he's bringing so much energy into the room. He was, he was a young guy at the time. I'm pretty sure he was in his thirties still, maybe even mid thirties. And to have that position, he came in and, uh, I remember thinking I had never been coached like that before. He was a special guy. You kind of felt it. You you, you knew that he was going to be uh, a great coach at the next level for
0: sure. Right. Cool. And and now because you are sitting in that coach's chair right now in the Windsor Spitfire locker room, um, d- did you ever have that inclination? Like, were, did, were you a guy that would pick up and kind of think about that aspect of the game? Would it be like on the on the other side of the bench at that time, or is, or was that for for later years?
2: That was that was still later years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I didn't really think about it too much. I always, for me, I always liked helping uh, like hockey schools and things like that. I always liked speaking to kids, um, that aspect uh, of the coaching. So when I got later in my pro career, it started to kind of sneak in, and that I, I might I might make a decent coach. I think the type of player I was also kind of helped me. I was always a guy that had to find ways. Um, kind of very detailed player I would say very I had to be coachable especially at the NHL level just to to survive for, for right. some I had to be pretty detailed in my my routes and my positioning and things like that so I was always you know I, was, I certainly was a structured player I would say
0: yeah no interesting yeah that's really interesting I like that because that's a total mindset thing there too right it's uh It's that adaptability. It's finding a way, right? Like figuring out how, how to survive. Um, and you mentioned the word coachability, which is something my, my wife and I just talked about, she's a dance teacher the other day. And it's a, it's a really interesting word. And I think it is a skill as well, um, to be able as a player, right. To, to, not be, not be talking in your brain while someone's talking to you, right. Or not trying to find the excuse, trying to find, you know, how this person is really trying to help me. And then not only listening, but being able to implement it is like such an interesting thing. Right. And that's your job is to help them implement and my job is to help them implement. But like as a player, you need to want to implement, right? Like that's, that's, that's a key, right? Do Do you find in this day and age with the players that you're working at that it is, is that a struggle a little bit is it uh, or how do you how, how do you see it this day and age
2: well i, I think I, I think that the coaching has completely changed since we came through there's no question about that i think that um i'm sure you have very similar experiences to me with all the different coaches you play for but it was just different it was uh, yeah. for me at least my experiences the, it was almost like dictating down and it's kind of this way or, or it's you're gone and we are on a highway, you know, and yeah. it just had to be, I had the type of personality, I, I could kind of take that, and I, I could be motivated by, by that type of coaching, but it's a different generation now, and, and these players, they do not respond to that. Um, we In Windsor here, we coach our players, it's a complete partnership. Uh, they are very, they know that we're all in it together. It's, uh, we're all equal parts. Um, there's not it's not an authoritative figure these players are not scared of myself as the head coach or any other person on the staff that's kind of how we try to build our culture here
1: right
2: so important we're just kind of supporting each other they know I'm not perfect I tell them that all the time I think back in the day you thought your coach was he knew all you know and they acted like they did and they but but that's I, times have changed, you know, and I yeah. think that I've seen that as an assistant coach already, like they, players will not respond to that anymore. They, they just kind of go away, you know, and so I take a lot of pride in, in, in truly having kind of building relationships, basically, and, and open communication, and, and you have to kind of be real truthful to that. I think that words are cheap, and I think a lot of people say those words um, in coaching positions or in authoritative roles, but... You know, I, talk to the players, talk to people that have, you know, whether you're in sport or not, I'm a big believer in that. If You you need to be open and feel comfortable and or else, um, you know, you're not going to be successful. So that's kind of the way we run things. And I feel like for the most part, players respond well. I mean, my only issue, I think, with the players is sometimes there's adversity no matter what because I can't play everybody 20 minutes, you know. Yeah players have to be healthy scratches. That's probably the hardest part about coaching. You, you know, you have to take them on a lineup, and sometimes those players, they just – those are the, that's the biggest challenge for me is to keep those lower-end players on board, but I, I, I try my hardest best for sure to do that.
0: Right. Yeah, no good for you. And I think, like you said, that, that authoritative, there wasn't much why back in our day, right? Like no one told you why, but it is told you. And you had to figure out a way to get it done. And I think now it's almost expected. And uh, I think it's on both sides of the fence. I mean, like if we were having a coach co- uh, conversation, I'd be asking, uh, we, we'd be talking more about, well, how do we get that from everybody, right? Like how do we, how do you find that way in? Cause that's what we want to be able to do from the player side though. It's interesting because, what happens if a guy maybe you think doesn't like you? I mean like and you don't want to go away and
1: hide, right? Because that's
0: not helping anyone, right? So you have to find a way to, to find a way, right, with that coach, whoever that is, if that's your goal and your dream. You can't let a you can't let a bad relationship with a coach at the time ruin whatever it is that you want want to have happen. And I think there's some adaptability there. And that's another one of those skill sets that we are talking about. Everyone's doing stick handling and power skating and stuff, but no one's talking about that. You know what I mean? I think those relationships are big. How to manage them, how to how to, you know, how to get the best out of yourself with the relationship that you're in with your coach. Um, It's true, right? I mean, someone needs to like you to get to the NHL too, unless you're one of those guys, one of those guys, right? Like, someone needs to like you. Someone needs to go to bat for you. Uh, And that's a relationship thing. That's not a hockey thing, you know? Um,
2: And I would say here, like, at least with here in Windsor, like, the players know that, like, we care about them, right? And if a player is is on the fourth line, like you said – He's gonna know why he's on the fourth line. He's gonna keep. We have, and that's that's a challenge about coaching. Now you can't just put a guy on – saying healthy scratch him, and you don't talk to him for a week. Like that just doesn't happen anymore, right? If I yeah. healthy scratch someone that wasn't healthy scratch the game before, I have to do my due diligence, and I need to have a reason why I did that. I, I hold that on myself, and and I'll bring that player in, and he's gonna know exactly why. This is happening to him. And he's going to also have a good idea of how he can get out of that. It's an open communication, you know? So, right. okay, they, we're going to show him evidence. We'll probably show him some video. Okay, this is w- what we see. We also want their feedback because I think that's an important part of coaching nowadays is, is not hearing my voice all the time. I want him to tell me, in a perfect world, I want him to tell me why he's out, what right. his growth areas are, what. What's he doing well? What can he do better? Okay, well, why? Like, I want him to take over the meeting more so than just me telling him all the information. Because a lot of times, through my experience coaching, they just sometimes, yeah, they're listening. And I think it was a good meeting. And then all of a sudden, two weeks later, they doing the same thing exactly. So they, they obviously weren't listening. So I feel okay. like giving the like giving him that power to feel comfortable and tell me exactly. And if he doesn't agree with me, that's fine. We can have a a, a decent, like we can have a conversation. At the end of the day, I have hard decisions to make and I have to make the decision, but uh, right. there's definitely a lot of give and take to it.
0: Sure, I think you're talking about accountability there is a word for that, right? I mean, you have the conversations. If somebody comes up, like say I'm playing for you and I'm like, hey, I wanna be X. And you're like, okay, well, if you wanna be X then you have to do Y. Do you agree with that? And I say, yes. And now why has to get done, right? So there's accountability to the player to get that done, to make that happen, right? To take ownership of that. And without that communication, that it's sort of that gray area, where I think a lot of us are left with in our day and age, is like, well, what do you actually want me to do? You know, like, I'll do it, right? But please tell me, you know? Um, yeah. Maybe let's get back to you and, and your pro. So first year pro, you go to Springfield, you had your training camp experience, you left there thinking like, holy smokes, I don't belong, I got a long way to go. So now you're going to the AHL, which is not an easy league either. Um, and you have your, your, your first year. I, I, I looked it up. You're playing with, you mentioned Danny Breer, which to me is really ironic because you guys were both small skilled centermen in the NHL. I mean, well, from that same NHL draft, Danny comes in, he's a year younger than you. He has a 92 point season. You come in, have a 31 point season. I have no idea how the ice time went there or what happened with all that, but I know you, Shane Doan, I think was also there. He was down there from the lockout. So now you're, you're trying to get to Phoenix. You, all, you already know the guys in Phoenix are great. And now you're sitting here looking at Danny Breer throw up 91 points and you got Shane Doan in the lineup. And you're like, how, how many spots are left? Like, what do you think in that first year when you, when you finish it and as you're going through it?
2: Yeah, yeah it's probably the hardest year I ever had as a player that year because just to backpedal a little bit the year before was almost the best year I ever had in hockey. My numbers were like through the roof uh, in junior I won the gold medal on the World Junior Team, which the biggest thing for that tournament as an individual, it truly put me on the map as being a legitimate prospect for the Coyotes because it, I was, you know, on the world. I mean, I was one of the top players in the country. And so that was a huge stepping stone for me. So I was feeling really confident about my game. It wasn't my first training camp because my first training camp had been the year prior the real eye-opening moment of how far I was away, I felt I got a lot better in my last year of junior. I thought I was really close to being an NHL player and then all of a sudden that happened. You go into the American League and that's a great league, you know, and I think the league has continued to get, it's so good now, it's so close to, to the NHL, you know, if you can score in that league, usually it translates to the NHL. You yeah. I went in there. I was in a tough spot. Uh, Danny Greer was a first-round NHL player, uh, very good player. Um, He got everything that he – he deserved everything that he was given. But, yeah, he was the first-line centerman. We had uh, Chad Kilgore was on that team. He was a fourth-overall player. They had a veteran that had – Rob Murray had played, like, 15 years pro or something like this. He was the third-line center. Like, I just had – for the first time, like it's like where you're looking at a depth chart and you're like, where do I fit? You know, I'm a decent player. I the coach liked me, I was an honest player, but there was no room for me. Like I was just kind of treading water, trying to find a way to stay in the lineup at that level. In American league. I was a healthy scratch a few games. I think I played seventy-five games that year out of eighty, but still five times I was healthy scratch. Uh, which had never happened to me before. My first year pro, I didn't score for 20 games. Wow. Probably the hardest time in my hockey career. Like I was, you know, alone in Springfield, Mass. And I hadn't scored for the first 20 games. And anyone that's been through a slump and played hockey at high levels, like some, you feel like you might never score, you know what I mean? (laughs) It felt like I might literally never score a professional goal, you know? And Finally, I got one in my 21st game. I think I had five assists at the time. And all of a sudden, I got six points in 21 games, but one goal. And I got better as the year went on. But it was a tough year. And it it taught me a lot. But I just kind of had to put my head down and just continue to work. And, you know, I didn't salt. I was not a powder. I I just came, uh, you know, and just kind of put the work boots on and and just grinded through it. But that, that was a challenging year for sure.
0: Yeah, what is the message there? I mean, like, that's interesting how you even painted that. I mean, you leave you leave June, you're feeling like, hey, I had a chance at the coyotes, right? Like, you mean and rightfully so, right? You're feeling good about yourself. You're walking on cloud nine. You don't make that team. And we didn't get into how camp went, but neither here nor there. You go to Springfield, now you're fighting to even get in the lineup. So, like, you, what you thought was this close now feels like a million miles away. You might never score a goal. Like, confidence dips at pro level is 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 crazy. And I talk about confidence a lot with the guys that I work with, but like how did, you, how did you deal with that? Like, wh- How did you deal with that and still keep that goal in mind that, hey, I want to be an NHLer, you know, like, I, I, and I can be an NHLer, like the belief of that. When you even scored in 20 games at the American League level, I'm sure you're not telling yourself and you go to bed at night, I'm going to play 600 games uh, in the NHL starting in the season, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think thinking back, I, I think what my mindset was, was tr- finding a way to contribute just there. I think – when I was going through that, I think the NHL thing wasn't it was maybe more of a dream rather than a goal because at that point I was fighting for my life with the Springfield Falcons. You know what I mean? I was trying to right. find a place there and find a way to contribute and you know get in the lineup there. So I think maybe that focus of kept me kind of present and kind of in it every day and I wasn't necessarily, even thinking about phoenix in those days i was
1: yeah.
2: just trying to find my place on that team and but like, there were certainly some dark days you know it's, yeah. it's
0: the american crazy. leagues are a grind man like it's a grind and and i i wish i wish the regular hockey fan would understand more just about what goes on there and like and how and how that phone call right like that phone call you talked about like can instantly change your life and in such a dramatic, like, profound way, like, from from the bus rides to the OHL, from the four and five nights, from the pizza on the bus, you know, from towns like Springfield to, you know, New York City and private jets and shrimp. Like, it's insane, the difference, right, in a phone call. And that's a hell, heck of a good league, too. But anyway, so, so you you have this experience as a first-year and your second-year – um. You're a point of game guy now, and a lot of those names go away. So Danny's in the show, I think. Like da- Donor was back in the show. Um, what else happened there for you to now get the ice time to be the guy on that team?
2: Well, I think my the coaches stayed the same, and so I did build trust with that coaching staff. I think I was a pretty decent player, but I was just there was just no room for me, you know, to play significant minutes. And I think I finished that year strong. Uh, maybe I was on like a half a point a game pace. Uh, for the last 50 games, I probably had 25, 30 points in those last 50, so I finished pretty well, so I was going into training camp not knocking on the door to be an NHL player, but I think a player that when Danny graduated, and when Donor graduated, and I'm trying to think, but there were certainly others that that moved on as well, Um, I I instantly became a pretty significant player, obviously, in Springfield, and and I, I went from being a I probably finished my first year pro as a third line player and I instantly came in as a, as a scoring forward, certainly a top six player right from puck drop of the first game. And I played well early and now I became basically the first line centerman on that team. And uh, arguably that might've been my best hockey season. I just, everything was going right for me in Springfield. I, you know, I'm playing, I'm a first line centerman playing on the power play, but also killing penalties and. Proving that I could kind of play a two hundred foot game at that level. That now looking back, Phoenix was obviously loving that development for me as a seventh round pick.
1: Right.
0: Yeah. No. That was pretty special, and uh, to make such a big to be, make such a big jump there. And I remember playing against you. We did play against each other that year. I was in St. John, um, and that was my best year too. Ironically, as far as from a production, I had, I had sixty eight points in sixty eight games and forty forty two goals in, uh, in in the league that year. And and had a strong year and i and i think this is an interesting point in the road for both of us because your next camp you made the show and you never played another game in the minors and i couldn't make i couldn't make the league again the next year and i mean we could debate that for forever and i I don't want it to be about me not how how do you think that worked for you like why do you think that worked for you and how did how did that training camp go and like how did that progression mean that you were able to leave that league and be an NHLer? Did were you were you ready? Did you know you were ready? Did someone believe in you that you that you needed to?
2: Yeah, I think that um, I didn't know for sure that I was ready. Um, I was hopeful that I was, like so again, like there's so many good players, and you just I don't know. I guess the fear of failure and all that. You're always just you're never sure. So. I certainly didn't go into that training camp thinking I was going to play 82 NHL games that year and have the season that I ended up having. But I think the, probably the most important thing for me was that I had someone go to bat for me. That was the head coach of the Coyotes, with Bobby Francis at the time. Um, my 14-game stint that I had in my second year, um, we had just a really good relationship. I knew that he really liked me. And... Um, I'd have to talk to Bobby now. I haven't really talked to him much since I've been done. I would love. I should do that, but I have to guess that he was a, a guy that really went to bat for me and wanted me to, to be a part of that team and felt that I was ready to play. And just a, a interesting coincidence. I don't know if it came up with, in Danny's conversation, but in, in with Danny Briere, but he was one of my best friends at the time. We were the same age. We played on the World Junior team together. We were drafted the same. Uh, Same year, we played in the American League for a year together. They ended up sending Danny down that year. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to say I took his spot because I filled a different role on the Coyotes, but I played 82 games in the National Hockey League that year. Danny ended up coming. He got sent down, and um, I can't remember exactly what ended up happening for him that year. I think he might have been traded that year. I think he got called up a little bit, but I can't remember exactly.
0: No, he ended up coming. He ended up coming back. Yeah, we covered that. He did come back and play with the Coyotes, and had, but he he did have that full year um, yeah. after his ninety point year, and then he came down uh, a year after, and that was you in your first year that he did come back, and then we talked about how like what what changed his perspective and how he ended up making it, which was an awesome story. Boy, I just really enjoyed the conversation with Danny a, a ton. Um, but, yeah, so you think it was a coach, and, and how did that – so you, you got called up uh, a little bit the first year and had an experience with that with the coach in Phoenix, and you, you felt you had a pretty good relationship?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I played 14 games that year, but there wasn't a chunk of 14. It was like I played one game, then I got sent down, and then I played two games, and I got sent down. Then I played three games over a 12-day span, and then I got sent down. So I
1: played right.
2: 14, but I was in the National Hockey League for more than – 20 days. I was in the National League for probably 45 days. So I got to know the coaches and the players and, um, you know, I had a few points and just having that good year in the American League, I was, I knew I was knocking on the door, you know, and um, I knew I had a good relationship with him. And I think I proved that I could play in a different role. You know, I think with Danny, they had him, he was kind of pigeonholed a bit to play he was just a one dimensional player. They felt, whereas with me, I was able to find a way and that's how I kind of survived as a third or fourth line player, but pretty adaptable. As far as where I'm going to play in the lineup, I didn't have, you know, I think that was kind of how, how I was able to play that many games is I never really was the fourth. I I never was that prototypical anything I would say in the NHL, you know what I mean? Like, a good friend of – I know he's a good friend of yours too, but it is a good example, Ryan Johnson, a friend of mine from Thunder Bay who played 800 games in the National Hockey League. He was a prototypical fourth-line centerman that was a great penalty killer. That you, He was a great face-off guy. He blocked shots. He played 10 minutes a night. Great teammate. He was a fourth-line center That's why he played – I can't really hang my hat on – being a fourth line center, I played wing, I played center, I played on the fourth line, I played on the third line, I played on the second line. Sometimes at the NHL level, there was injuries. I was kind of like um, always a guy that was moving around the lineup. And I mm-hmm. somehow I carved out a niche of being that guy that can just – you can almost plug in and play anywhere. And I was able to find a way. And, and yeah. made an honest effort as well. But I was never really – and that's why I don't think I ever signed the big contract. And I never had a lot of term on my contracts because no one would commit, okay, this is my third line centerman. We can bring him in for the next four years and pay him $12 yeah. I never got that contract. I right. was always in like, year to year, like scratch and claw, find a way to to play, you know? Yeah, so,
0: yeah no, good for you. That's a testament to get it done. I love that. That's the longevity, too. Um, where do you think through through your time, whether it was in Phoenix or wherever, um, was there somebody that had a big influence on you, whether it be a, a player like, you know, one of one of somebody that wore a C on their jersey or maybe not. Maybe it was just you know, a, a journeyman that had been around the league for 10 years or a coach or an assistant coach. Was there somebody that you were like, wow, this this really helped me like figure things out? That's a tough I
2: mean. There's not, not one guy that sticks out. There's multiple players, I think, on almost every team. Every captain that I played with, I just think the world of. You know, like Keith Kachuk was my first captain in Phoenix, and just what a character guy, uh, just a beauty, just a hardworking guy. Loved to have fun away from the rink. Um, but I learned so much from that Phoenix group. It was we had the, It was the oldest team in the league. I don't know if Danny shared that. But that team was full stock full of veteran players, like kind of legends, like Hall of Fame type players like Keith Kachuk, Jeremy Roenick, Rick Tocket, Sean Burke, Teppel Newman, and Yurke Lume, guys that played almost a thousand games. Travis Green was on that team. Like there's two right. NHL head coaches now, Greener and, and Tock, you know. Um, yeah. It was uh, it was a really interesting group to kind of get my feet wet into the national hockey league playing with all those veteran players you know
0: yeah that's super cool to be surrounded by that right yeah, yeah yeah because that was like when i look back on, on that and, and one of the things i noticed looking at your hockey db which what, what a resource that hockey db is to be able to, to find guys but um, yeah. you weren't able like you had the sick you had the one you had the one playoff series in um, in vancouver and other than that you you, you, you just weren't on teams that were in the playoffs. Right. I mean, and I just found it interesting in my own career because I never played in a team for a whole season, but the first three teams that I played with organizations were teams that weren't doing well, you know, like it was Florida. Well, Florida was just there. I mean, they just got out of the Stanley cup finals. So they were doing well at the time, but they still were trying to figure out who they were and what they were all about. And then I got traded to Toronto who wasn't in the playoffs. So They're were, they in, they in one of their long drought kind of scenarios. And then I went to LA, who at the time wasn't doing well, performing well, it was like post-Gretzky era. And then, and then I was with Tampa Bay for for a handful, and they were terrible at the time. Um, and then, and then I was with the Islanders. Got trying with the Islanders, they hadn't been in the playoffs forever. And then the last team that I tried out for, and it was like after I went to Germany and after I went to Japan, was the Red Wings. And then I walked into camp there, and I was like, holy smokes! Like, so this is what it's all about, right? And like. And just the way that the older guys like talked with me or talked with the younger guys or like that, the, the whole culture there, I know culture is a really ambiguous word, right? It's one of those words that everyone says they have it or everybody wants it, but nobody knows what it means. Like when you've got it, you f- can feel it, you know, and, and, and Detroit had it there. And, uh, and I just mean like Lidstrom, like Holmstrom. Like these guys like made you Chelios, like they made you feel a part of something bigger, like that you could contribute. I just, and it was interesting because not that Matt Sundin wasn't an amazing captain. He was a great guy and a great player, but it was, it was different. It was just different, you know, like, and I don't know how else to put it, but like, do you. You know, in your time there, did you ever feel like on those teams, like, was it, were you just sort of surviving, or were, or were you thriving, or like, how, how did that work? Because I just felt such a different environment there when you're in a good environment. Like, it just feels different, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, that's interesting, yeah. So, while well, I will go through, I played for four teams. The Phoenix teams, we were just okay. Veteran players that we weren't ready to, to win there, and that was, I was so young and so excited and just surviving all of them. I went to Vancouver, and actually, we had a real good team in Vancouver, but we were young, but we were good. Uh, the year I played, I only played, I think, six playoff games, but the team played two full rounds, and we lost in game seven in the second round uh, to Minnesota, but that was a year that we were one of the best teams in the league. Uh, Bertuzzi, Marcus, Nas, and Morris. Oh, okay. Teams. We were good. Yeah. Uh, I was kind of a real depth player on that team, but that was a team that was kind of special. We were probably good enough to win, but we didn't. But yeah. we went through the second round right to the end of it. Uh, both years, we were pretty good there. We lost in the first round in Detroit. Uh, one of the years, we had a, a good series against Detroit. But So I played on a good team in Vancouver. Then I went to Columbus, and that was – we were just – it was kind of your experiences there in, early in your career. We were very good, not a playoff team. But then I had the experience of playing in Carolina – Um, at the very end for two years, and we weren't a playoff team there, but it was a team that had just won the Stanley Cup uh, the the year before I joined it. And so they had all those players, for the most part, returning. Rod Brindamore was the captain, Uh, Ray Whitney, Glenn Wesley, Brett Hedekin, uh, players that had had worked so long and so hard, and they finally had just won a cup. Um, We actually had a pretty good year. We were one of those teams that had like 93 points, and missed the playoffs. The following We had a pretty good year, but missed the playoffs. But that culture, it, I'm not going to compare that to the Detroit Red Wings because I know I've heard so many stories about that, but I can relate to the certain feeling of, of the room from that leadership group, and it funneled all the way down of the expectation of, of how you had to handle yourself day to day. When I walked into that Carolina dressing room in August, Two months after they had just won the Stanley Cup, you know? right? It's different. It's
1: just isn't different. it wild?
0: Like it's completely, it's completely different. Brad Larson's po- talked about that. Like um, being with Colorado, like maybe one of the greatest teams ever assembled, right? And and uh, and being a part of that Joe Sakic, Forsberg, Blake era, right foot, like these guys. He's like yeah. he it was about winning period. Right. It wasn't about your job. It wasn't about the contract. It wasn't about how many minutes you were getting, right. It was about being part of of something bigger than yourself. And, and so that was, that was the, you know, that was this foundation that he came up with and he ended up going to Atlanta and, uh, and it was just, he said, it was just, you know, I mean, stark contrast and how you could even believe you're in the same league essentially. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. and that's interesting it is interesting maybe for another discussion but i mean and now as a coach i'm sure you're trying to create that and you said you're talking about that culture and that caring and you know the standards right standards versus expectations and that's interesting too but um when when you look back on a guy like i don't know you said to chuck or you said you know like a ray or brindamore like brindamore is like this prototypical like now he is a coach right and doing his thing there and he was you know takes care of himself he seems like the ultimate high performance type person right like he's always trying to get better like did, any any takeaways from him like how did he go about his business that guy
2: he was just so respected and he he didn't he doesn't he's not like a real loud guy i wouldn't say he's quiet but he's just when he spoke there was so much respect for what he was saying um, and it was just the way that his habits and, and the things that he did on a daily basis it would It just blew you away and like I had read before let's just say before I played with him I knew the stories I heard about like how hard he would train and things like that but it's one of those things where until you actually see this man doing it on a daily basis you can't even believe it you know what I mean like there was there's one thing I I tell this story to my players I have told my players this story but there, there was a, a night I remember in Carolina where the game was over and we had had a, a tough stretch of games where we played like six games in 10 or 11 days and we finally were getting a day off and we were at home and we were all going on for a team dinner we were bringing the girlfriends, the wives, and we were going to kind of have a nice party right after the game, a home game. And um, I think we still did a flush ride because that was part of the, the culture there. It was very hard working with all those veterans, so we still we did do like a little circuit or something. But I was in my I was one of the last guys to leave. I had my suit ready or whatever. I'm ready to go, and I still I remember walking past the gym, and Roddy was still in the gym, and he was doing like three plates aside, like doing squats, and he was like not even close to leaving the rink. You know what I mean? And he's just training so hard at that moment this is a player that was near the end of his career he was in his late 30s he was on a five-year deal at like 3.5 a year and he had had the career that he had had but yet his I don't know exactly what what pushes that person to be so relentless with his work but it's a great story like everyone and every I would say everyone to a man on that team is almost like a high performer like they they're working but yet this guy is like a different echelon. you know, sure. this guy is just pushing it to extremes that it's hard for a regular person to, to comprehend
1: yeah. you know,
2: that, that, that relentlessness that, that he was bringing And it's just, he's bringing it in every day. He's not, he's not telling you about it. He's not boasting about it. He's not telling anybody, probably including his, his wife or his parents that he's there, but he's just, coming in every day and he's coming he's bringing the same attitude um to the team and and it's just so contagious he doesn't have to say a word uh, right. it's just if you feel it as a person on that team like you see rob brenner doing it he doesn't have to say a word to me i need to do it too you know or else
0: well don't you right i mean that's the thing and what, what do you do as a young guy when you think you're supposed to go out and you're thinking about how many beers you're gonna have and where they're at right and he's still in the gym Right. And you're like, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, if that, if that isn't an awesome example and that's what I love those stories uh, and, uh, and geez, and, and and if young guys can just model that now, right? Like in some way, shape or form, because that's the other thing about leveling up. And I talked to my guys about whatever level you want to get to, whether that's the OHL or that next step, whether that's Springfield for you and then to the NHL, like every time you make that step, there's a different requirement. Right. There's a different level that you need to get to because what you what you did to get there was only good enough to get you there. Now you have to find a way to stay there. Right. And you were talking about adaptability. And that's when you have when you have those examples or you have somebody like yourself that's been there that can share the stories, you still need to learn it on your own, but it's really helpful to understand, right? Like cause you have to raise your own expectation level because what you've done so far isn't good enough.
2: It is, and I think that what I learned playing in the NHL for that long and from Rod and, and different players, I played with Adam Foote as well, and I think the world of him, like just the leadership. But I think the biggest thing for young players is they, they have a hard time handling success. and They have a hard time handling adversity as well, but I feel like, just for, to give you an example, motivating my team after we've lost, I find is easier than motivating them after we've won. You know what I mean? Like I, I feel like to like greatness is so hard because they can get so complacent so easily. I find young players. You know what I mean? And to be truly great and to be an NHL player, to be the Rod Bryndamors of the world, there's just there's no complacency after success because they keep doing things well, but they just keep doing it again and again. And you know, like if we've lost five and or even for me as a coach, I hate when we have an opposing team they're on a three game trip. I hate that they just lost the night before. You know, yeah. I want them to win in London or win in Saginaw before they come to Windsor because I feel we have a mental edge on a junior team that that just – I want them to win. I want – you know, yeah. so they're feeling – they get complacent and then we can put the hammer down. And I feel it's my biggest challenge as a coach is when we've won three or four in a row, how can we win five? How can yeah. we win six? Because – if we've lost three in a row, I know there's going to be a pushback. I know we can jolt and we can get them going, but it's our, we're constantly trying to truly be consistent every single day, whether we've won, whether we've lost, whether we have playing at home, whether we're playing on the road. Here we go again. We're the Windsor Spitfires, and we're starting from scratch, and we're going to come, and we're going to be the play, try and play to our identity every single day. It's a challenge.
0: That's so awesome. I'm smiling on the inside while I am on the outside right now, because like what you just said there, like, and I'm talking I'm coaching my son, my oldest son, um, who's 10 years old, right? So he's on the, he's on the best team Vernon has, right? So it's the academy team here. And this group of kids that I'm coaching are like, they're good. Like they really are good. And uh, we're, I think we're 14 and one to start the season and we're kind of mowing over people. And, and what you just like, we had practice yesterday and I said, guys, we got a problem. And, and I'm like, what do you think the problem is? And guys are guessing. I'm like, we're good. We're really good. And I'm like, you know why that's a problem? And, anyways, so we got into this conversation. It's just what you're saying. I said, for us to be great, we don't have anyone to chase right now. Yeah. Everyone's trying to get better because they're, they're, we've set the bar, and, our, and the bar is us. So they know where they can get to, and we don't have anyone to chase. So we have to chase each other. And I'm like, being great's hard, being good's easy. Yeah. Right? And that's kind of the Rod Brindamore thing too, right? Like Rod Brindamore had just a standard of doing things. And when you can develop that as a player, as an individual, and then bring that together as a team, yes. right? Like now now you're on to something, right? Like where everyone believes that there's another level. There's always got to be somewhere else to get to. And um, yeah, I think it's fun. Like I'm having conversations with these guys. I tell them all the time. I'm like, do you guys – I'm treating you guys like junior players. And I because I think I can, because the mind, the way to think about stuff, it doesn't start at seven, eight, nine, or fifteen. Like it can start whenever, right? And then it's gonna treat you. That's so true. So it's super fun. It's super fun. And just to be a part of that, and I know how much juice you must get out of coaching those guys at that level. I get a ton of fun out of it just doing it here at, on the minor youth level. It's uh it's really great to have an impact and to see guys kinda of when the lights go on, right? And they and they start having start having some success. Um I did, down, I did have down here in my notes culture, and I think we talked about that enough. But I, I do think it's an interesting thing. And from a, from a coach perspective, you're trying to build it. But, like, that's one thing I, I, I got from Babs as just developing – and when I t- try to talk to the guys I work with about is developing an individual culture, like an individual identity. Because um, I felt Babs had that. I thought that he, like, he wakes up in the morning, I truly believe, and he's trying to get better. Yeah. I think I, I think he's trying to get the team better, but I think he's trying to get himself individually better. Like I think that's just sort of like how he's wired, you know. And he's whether whether that's how he's wired or how he grew into that process. But yeah. you as a coach now, like I think you had to, had to have that as a player. Like you said, you 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 gain these different skill sets. You're adaptable. You could do these things. Like do you do you try and do that in your day? Like do you do you trying to be a better coach? And and if so, like how do you go about that process of improvement?
2: Yeah, like for me, I do, I try to reset every day and really challenge myself to truly try to get better. And I know that everybody's saying it, but it's easier said than done, you know, you really need to challenge yourself to continue to get better as an individual, whether you're a player or you're a coach, like, like for me, for our team to get better, how are we going to find a way? And I challenge our coaching staff here in Windsor, like, how are we going to? make our team better today. Like, we, we can't just do the same practice that we did last week and recycle it and let's just get through the day because we don't play till Saturday. And that mindset will just, you're just going to go away. We need to, we're coming in in the morning and we're excited about kind of brainstorming, watching some some film or whatever and, and seeing, okay, where are we struggling? Where are we, where are we good? And really identifying it and then translating into a practice or coaching a player up, basically, and, and finding a way to make that player better, whether that's on the ice or off of it with a with a meeting, with video, with an off-ice workout, but but truly putting time in as a complete staff and, and preparation, and the fact that we can find a way to make our team better. As far as our players go, yeah, the culture thing, like for me, I always tell them, like, what is your mindset for the day? Like, I want... Culture to me is like, how does a player, like when he wakes up in the morning, because I'm sure you had it, Podzi, as a player. I certainly did at times. I had it when I was in Russia. But like there was days for me, a lot of days actually, if I'm being honest, as a player where I was waking up and I was not excited to go to the ring. I was actually dreading going to the ring. You know, I was just, oh, here we go. Like, I want to just get through the day. There was a, a lot of days like that for me. And it, it, because of the organization's culture and because of the coaching, I would probably blame it on more than anything else. And for me, it's a constant, um, it's constant communication with the players. But I want my, like, I ask them this all the time. How are you feeling? Are you, I want my players in Windsor, when they wake up, I want them to be excited to come to the rink. And if we have that, and i think that's a huge first step in creating something special here because if we have players that are moping in here and, and just dreading it and they think it's going to be oh here we go again oh this he's going to it's going to be a negative or like it's you're not going to move forward you know i want every single player to truly feel that that and i know it's not going to happen every day for every player because what we've talked about is someone might have been healthy scratch and i can understand those those circumstances but for the most part, I want my players like excited to come to the rink and 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 be around their teammates and their coaches and their trainers and really have a good experience for the day. I truly feel that that, that just that mindset alone can help make them better.
0: Sure. Know? I think that's a good segue. I know I'm sensitive to time here. We got about maybe five, 10 minutes left. Is that okay? Yeah, okay, perfect. Um, So I'll wrap up with a few more questions. But I think think that's a good segue. Like you're talking about enthusiasm, right? You're talking about um, being interested, right? Being excited. Do you think is that a good way for players to get noticed? And, and, and that's part of the second part of the question, which is like training camp. You're a month out of training camp now, but you just did have training camp. Guys at the youth level have just kind of been making, been cut from teams or whatever. And, and parents and parents are like, how do I get noticed by a guy like Trevor Latowski? Right. Like, how do I, what, what do I do? You know? And, And I talk about things like that. I talk about, I talk about being enthusiastic. I talk about being attentive. I talk about being professional, right? Being early, staying late. Like those are cliche a little bit, but if you're, if if you're doing that with intention, you're going to get noticed because it's not, it's not, everybody's doing it, you know? And, and when you talk about culture, I mean, I know for me, like, I love that kid in the room that's got a big smile on his face, right? It's ready to go, right? He's enjoying being there. Like I want him on my team, right? Like, I don't care maybe if he's got a little less hands than somebody else, right? If that guy's a spark club, he's ready to go, and he's making our room better. Like, to me, that makes a big difference. Like, w- would you encourage guys to, to come out of their shell a little bit and, and to embrace that enthusiasm?
2: Yeah, I would. I mean, I, I, I agree with you, Pods. I love that player as well. But I'm also – everyone's got a different personality, right? And there is players – there's players on our team that are introverts, and they don't say a lot. Um, so I think you really, as a coach, at least you need to get to know the player. You need to get to know each and every one of them. But I think a, a very – like less is more sometimes. Is for, like there's some players like you can kind of – when you've been coaching a while, you can kind of see right through them, you know. Like there's a phoniness to, yeah. to a lot of players yeah. uh, that kind of drives me a little bit crazy. Like I want the player that he has like a, almost I, – I appreciate the quiet energy. Like we – I think – At our level, coaches at our level, at least, I think that's a challenge for us. But we need to identify that player that is just continuing to punch the – we're aware that he's in the gym. We're aware that he's the first player. Because some coaches, I would say, they're not doing their homework. they don't know that, you know. I want to know everything about our players. I want to talk – I'm talking to our strength coach every day, seeing how the workouts are going. I'm seeing them in the practice sessions. And there's a – you get so many viewings and you're around them so much that you just you see it you you see the consistency and maybe he's not the loudest kid in the room but there's an energy to his work that it comes out that that consistency you know that i think that players sometimes they can try to do too much or and, and that can maybe set them back they have like a there's a fakeness to their energy, and they're trying to like almost like that uh, the kid that's always, oh, coach, what do you think of this? Oh, what do you think? Like sometimes you can go a little bit overboard with that too, and sometimes just like a lot of times when my players are going to pro camps, it's like I, I the advice I give them is like be the like be that that work ethic that doesn't go unnoticed, you know? Like yeah. make sure with everything that you're doing, you are a hardworking player, and and I think that everyone is says they're hardworking, you know? And I think that's yeah. thing for young players, too. I, I always talk to my team, in one of my first meetings I have, like, in the summertime, I call every single player to see how their workouts are going, and every single player to a man tells me that they're having the best summer summer that they've ever had and that they're the hardest – it's the hardest they've ever worked and all this, and then they come to training camp, and the guy that told me he's the hardest-working guy was, like, 40th out of 60 in the fitness testing. Like, you don't, they don't really, some of them don't know how right. it is to truly be this yeah. artist working player. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. I don't know, like, it's like, it's almost, it's an intangible, it's like just so valuable to yeah. me, that, that true work ethic every single day. I
0: understand. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's authenticity with who you are as a player, right? And I, I personally struggle with that because I was, as much as I was the guy in the room or tried to be the guy in the room that would get guys laughing and stuff, like I was, I was more of an introvert. Like I wanted, I, I wasn't, yeah. it was hard for me to get comfortable in that environment. And I, and I wasn't the guy that would want to go and do the work, the, the weight workout in front of the coach's office, just because I knew it was in front of the coach's office. Right. You know what I mean? Like, so I would do a lot of stuff that no one would ever see. Cause I was like, if I do my business on the ice, that's, that's what I want. Like, so yeah. I, I come at that, uh, at this from a little different angle. Right. Because like, it, there is such a difference because everyone is wired different. Somebody wants to be first in line with their hand up. Some guys are hiding in the corner, right? But everyone wants the same thing. And it's like, how do you get across that fact that you want to be a pro and that you're prepared to do the things that are being a pro, right? And it takes that coach to understand you, but it also takes, I think, there's got to be some ownership from the player to build that relationship, too, right? To let that coach know somehow authentically, right? That they're in it to do the business, right? That they're in it to do the work. Because, yeah. um, like I said, you don't want somebody to be fake about it. You mean you're going to yeah. see through that right away, right? And also, the yeah. the proof in the pudding is whether you're going to do the action or not. Anyone can talk a good game. Every guy in the world's going to interview well. I guarantee you.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Question
0: yeah. is, what happens two weeks after that meeting? Right. What are they doing then? Yeah. Uh, and you know
2: what I would add to that point. Like the game has become so detailed, and with, with the technology, that even in the junior hockey, the, the coaches of there's so much video and, and analytics and and. Uh, basically the evaluation of a player there's so much feedback like it's like there's nowhere to hide you know what I mean like even in our practices there's we can we can take the practice sometimes and evaluate and so you can't really hide you know what I mean like you can the talk is cheap like you say every player is saying the right thing when you're one-on-one with the player especially the player and the head coach you know but how yes. does the player like show me all items you know, show me how you're treating the trainer, not me. I know you're going to be nice to me. Like, I'm sure. not, not stupid, right? Like, they're going to be yeah. nice to the head coach, right? But yeah. are they going to be nice to the guy that was holding the door on the way into the rink? Or are you going to be a good person at school? Make some friends at school, like, outside of hockey, which I think is so important. Like, not yeah. your hockey guys, you play for Winchester Spitfires doesn't make it better. than yeah. someone else, You know what I mean? That's the type of player we want. Yeah. Uh, so... Yeah, but like at the end of the day, there's we have video. We have so much access to, like, if they're not doing their job, if they're not playing the right way, their habits aren't right. We can show them. Like, it's just kind of black and white. Where I don't think as players we didn't have that luxury coming up through junior, where you know the the coach might not play as much, but like there wasn't communication, there wasn't feedback of why, there wasn't evidence of why with actual video clips showing you, and that's why I think. The game is continuing to evolve. The players are better than they've ever been. And next year they'll probably be even better because the game's evolving and there's so no. many different things that make the players better.
0: No, I, I hear you. And I still I'll, – I'll, we'll conclude that little segment with I think there's there's still room for good guys. You know, like – and I think there's a testament to you there. Like you said, you didn't really have a role. You didn't really have a niche. But you're not going to play 600 games if you're an asshole plain and simple. You know what I mean? Like it's a team game at the end of the day and it's about relationships. And if you can be a good human and have good human traits, I mean, that's going to do a lot because the locker room matters, right? Like I think guys, some guys forget that. They think it's all about what my plus was, what my minus was. You got to be a good guy, right? You got to be a good guy. You got to be somebody that people want to be around and that helps. (laughs)
2: That's a great point. And I think when you look at management and coaches, they're a lot of them are former players and they're all human, whether they're former players or not. They want to be able to trust their employee. They want to trust their players, right? So I think that if you have a reputation of being a good teammate, being a good person, it takes you further than maybe you even know, you know?
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: I got um, two other two questions here. Um, from, uh, from people that are following me. So I, I, I said that I was going to be interviewing you today. And I said, you know, if you were to, if you were to have him on the other side of, you know, the interview, what would like, what, what do parents want to know? Or what do, what do players want to know? And I had, I had two real good questions that I thought were relevant. Um, and one was from a lady named Diane Megra. sounds like she's from maybe the Ontario area. And uh, she said, what if you don't get drafted or get cut even say from a, from an OHL team. And now you're on a junior B team. First of all, she's wondering, can they ever get to the OHL? Is it possible? And, and, and how is it possible? Um, I I will depart from that quickly. And I looked at your roster and I was actually shocked, uh, quite honestly, that everyone on your team was drafted by Windsor. Um, Which I don't think, I mean, I didn't do a whole cross section of the league, but I do know there is room for guys who haven't been drafted in the Bantam draft to to make, to make major junior. I know it happens a lot. It doesn't seem like it happened with you guys this year, but um, what is, what is your, what is your answer to that? Like, is, is, is junior B okay? Can you, can you, can you get found in junior B? And if so, like, what would you say to those players?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it's a great question. I, I think that, that we've kind of talked about this a little bit, but like as a 16-year-old, you're just so young and you're so far from being the best player that you can be at 16. If you're going to peak at 24 years old and you can find a way to truly get better every single year, um, you can certainly push the envelope and become an OHL player and then become an NHL player. I think that It's been proven in the past, are the odds against you? Sure they are, but it can happen. Become a very good player at the level that you're at and then you're gonna be recognized and you're gonna be knocking at the door to get to the next level. Um, If we don't draft a player, there's players every year, that they don't get drafted, all of a sudden they're they're junior B players and if they establish themselves as good junior B players, they're probably gonna get invited to a camp and they're gonna be knocking on the door. Do they make our team right away? That's pretty hard to do. But then, now we know them, now they're gonna go back to Junior B again, all of a sudden they're the best player again, and they're just pushing the envelope and just kind of pushing the door open, and not going away. I think my advice is, there's a lot of kids, whether they weren't drafted, even if they were drafted, but they get any adversity at all, and they think it's the end of the world. Like I think they need to look at it in a, a bigger picture, look at it i would say to that parent that 16 year old they have so many years ahead of them to develop to become the best player that they can possibly be and that's just one setback if they went through the draft but if they're truly good enough and they're pushing each year like people will see them they'll, they'll yeah. find a way somehow because especially now the evolution of the game every games on tv our scouts are watching games on tv as much as they are live, even at the
0: right. I know it's crazy. And you gotta dominate, right? That's what I tell my guys, at least. I mean, like we're like dominate the level you're at. You I mean even if you think you're not supposed to be there, then prove that you're not supposed to be there. Dominate it, right? And you're gonna get noticed, right? Like treat that league like you're like you're Peter Forsberg, right? Like you're that guy, right? Like and be Rob Brindemore. Show up early, stay late, get better there, right? And I think if if you can put that type of work ethic, like you you said, into where you wanna go, someone's gonna find you because coaches want guys like that right yeah and the other thing is too which i think guys forget about and i didn't know at the time is that guys like you help the guys that are on your team you're gonna have like you want to go to bat for those guys there's guys that you trust there's guys that you respect that when that phone rings you're like yeah this guy's your guy right like he's your guy draft him or do whatever and that that same coach in junior b is getting those calls from guys like you hey what's so-and-so like Exactly. Right. That coach, if that coach knows that you're putting in the time, putting in the work, and he wants to vote for you, man, that makes all the difference in the
2: world. It's so true, and I think it's a great point, especially for all young players, as far as respecting their coach and being a good good teammate. Like I think the best scouts are the scouts that talk to the coaches because you're crazy. like if I was ever a scout, I don't think I, I it's in my makeup, but if I was ever a scout, my first phone call every single time is to the coach. I mean the coach knows the player so much better than any scout could ever know him. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. You're gonna tell me that you come and watch my player. I don't care who you are. You can be a general manager of the National Hockey League level. You see my player play five times. Okay. I've seen my player play 68 times, and I've also seen him practice 100 times, and I've seen him work out 60 times. On this play. I'm home ask me about them, you know and for the most part i think the, the, the coach is at least i'm going to be honest too and i tell my players that all the time like i'm not going to lie for you you know what i mean Like, i have to be honest or else i lose my credibility with the person asking me so i think i'm i'm very true to that like if it's a player that has not been a good teammate has not been doing the things we asked and if the scout asks me like i'm not going to sue the player per se but i'm certainly not going to promote him and if he's not doing the things right on a daily level i think i can funnel all the way down to whatever level right uh, you need to have the coach in your own like earn the coach's trust like at the end of the day the coach wants the best for you he wants the best for the team if you're doing the right things if you're a good player like he's not going to screw you just to to screw you you know what i mean like there's got to be a
0: yeah, no, I agree, and I think that's that, that's you hit the nail on the head there because you I mean what you're doing. I mean, you're not gonna you're not gonna vote for somebody that you don't want to vote for, right? Because it is you, and it's what you've built. So I mean, if you keep if you keep promoting guys that aren't promotable, right? Like that doesn't look good on you. So I mean, yeah, I mean that, that's the, that's the authentic authenticity again, right? Be be real, and uh, you're gonna get a real answer. And I agree with that. I'd be calling the coach too. You know, you know better than anyone else, and and it's all those intangibles that you know that you maybe don't see on the ice in those five games, right? What is it? the resiliency like how do they handle adversity right what are they like away from the rink what type of teammate are they i mean all those things that matter so much so um cool so that was from diane Megron. the last one um here Lutz, is from gordon sitter Uh, his uh his son actually plays on my team and and it was it's a great question he said uh when kids are 16 17 years old and breaking into the whl ohl or q are they better playing 20 minutes a night at a lower level or be with the big club playing 10 minutes a night uh, against better competition? How how would you answer that if if there is an answer? I know it's pretty nuanced and it probably depends on the team and the player but um, if you could do your best to give an answer to that what do you think if it was your son?
2: Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, my first instinct my first act I think would be probably to play in, with, in the Western Hockey League or in the Ontario Hockey League or whatever major junior play at the highest level possible. I think that especially now, the way that the programs are run, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's like a full-time hockey here, you know, whereas in, uh, say, in our, with our affiliates, that's not, like, they don't have full-time coaches. Um, they don't practice every single day. Like, um, so the whole, like, the whole environment is different at, at the higher level, you know? Like, we have a strength and conditioning coach that is paid to provide a workout that is the best possible workout for the player on that specific day. And the coaches have spent all day preparing the practice and uh, preparing video to make the player better and then to get out in the practice. And we have skill development coach and we have a skating coach and we have access to all these different oh, yeah. kinds of people that maybe the uh, the lower level. Yeah, he's going to get more minutes in the game. And not, there's certainly an argument to that because you, at the end of the day, I think that that's very valuable to, to be in game situations. And to be succeeding and you need ice time no question but at the end of the day if I had to answer it I think a player can develop just fine um, if he's playing limited minutes in the game as long as he's getting everything else if he's practicing at that high level you remember Podzi when you first got called up to the NHL and the, the, the pace of that practice is just faster it, it makes you better it makes you pass the puck better the higher the level even in the practice sessions.
1: I agree with you. Yeah.
0: I think, I think that's huge. Yeah. And, 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 and I think also um, what we just talked about previously, like you can go to that, to that lower level. And again, there's going to be variations to, to, to what we're saying here, but the, the relationship you're also building with that coach, right? Like while you're there. So, I mean, you might be playing 10 minutes a night, but that you're going to be probably in a better situation that next year, like like you were, where you come now in, the coach knows you, some older guys leave and now you're filling this spot and you're not having to build that trust and build that scenario of coming in from this other organization. So I think there's a lot to be said for that as well. Yes. And, and
2: to finish, I would like to say this too, like the London Knights in our league, they, they have – it, it, it's arguably the best program in Canada. They, they continue to win and they draft so well. and They have so many high-end players, but they continue to, like if you look at it, they have 16-year-olds that they actually keep in London all year. And uh, almost consistently, they, they don't do anything as a 16-year-old. Like, they barely even get in the lineup, but they are actually on the London Knights. And they might play 30 games and they have like three points. Yeah. You know? Honestly, I, if you look back, I wish I had a few names. Like, even um, we have we have Jean Luc Foodie on our team. He's a, a player that might get drafted in the first round. His brother, the Foodie, I can't remember his first name right now, but he's he plays for the London Knights. He was drafted in the first round for the Columbus Blue Jackets uh, two years ago. He might play on the World Junior team this year, but as a 16 year old in the OHL, he had like eight points in like 40 games. Like he didn't even play. Like, right. and all of a sudden, the very next year was his NHL draft year, and he just goes off the – he just goes off.
1: The, right. and he ends
2: up scoring 50 points, and he's a first-round pick in the National Hockey League because – and so, he, I mean, there's a good uh, – for my argument, like, how do you argue that? But he's been developed the right way. He wasn't in game situations, but each and every day he was challenged. He was practicing with great players every day, and he developed, and he was ready – when the time came the following year to, to be a great player. And I think the London Knights are a great example of it. They continue to do that almost every single Yeah, year. that's
0: great. If you got that culture too, because then you, you, you yeah. give yourself the time to mentally – feel like you're ready and that you belong to it's interesting because like you know even coming from that other league like say you did play the 20 minutes and you had success there you still haven't played in the whl yet or you still don't play in the whl yet and that's a level up so you have to go through that whole mental side of things whereas as a 16 year old you're the whole time you're just absorbing it you're metabolizing it you're you you believe it more even if you've only had a few games right you've been there so i think it's i think you're still at an advantage so I would agree with you. Well, Luke, I I mean, I appreciate your time. This was awesome. Hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. I know the, People here listening will too. Um, a lot of good stuff from you, and uh, and I didn't really mention it. Right, you guys are keep crushing it. I mean, congratulations! You're obviously doing something great there. Uh, first place right now, and uh, you're at a little streak rolling, like you said. So keep protecting that winning streak.
2: Thanks, buddy. Yeah, we're, we got a great young team here. We've had a really young team the last couple of years. We uh, we won the Memorial Cup a couple of years ago there, and we kind of rebuilt it, and now we have a group that's getting close to being real good. And uh, they're just a fun group to coach. I'm enjoying every day here. So That's awesome. This, this flew by. So it was, it was
0: awesome. I know. It's crazy. Start talking Hawkins. It's like, what? What time is it? <laughs> no, it's perfect. No, thanks again, man. Um, we'll catch up here after this. I'll let you know. When we're going to release it. And um, awesome, man. really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy.
2: Thanks so
0: a Thanks, Luke. Okay, Cheers. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, having that conversation with Trevor was uh, – I expected it to be good, but it was really even better than I even expected. Uh, Trevor's authenticity, his his relatability—that was almost like palpable. You could feel it um, that he cares. He cares about the guys that that uh, that are playing for him. He cares about his coaching staff. He wants people to get better, and he wants to get better himself. And and when you come at life with that approach. Uh, boy it's, it's not hard to tell why he's successful why his team's having such a great season and why why he's so highly respected within the game uh, and at what he does so the fact that we were able to listen to him for 90 minutes and to hear his story uh, uh his own personal story about becoming a hockey player and a 600 game nhl veteran and also now his experiences behind the bench and and how he's grown into that role and how he's evolved uh, to be the coach that he's come become today um i think we should all just be grateful and and uh And Thank him for for his time because that's what this is all about is about people in his position that have been through the wars themselves that are now able to pass along this knowledge to the players who want to be the best versions of themselves today. So uh, we have more we have more episodes coming up. Obviously, Uh, this podcast is just getting started. And it's with the support of people like you that are talking about it that are telling me uh, how much they appreciate it and sharing it with others that really makes this thing grow and becomes uh, becomes something special. So uh, stay tuned uh, for more great guests. I'm really humbled at the quality of guests I'm able to have on this show. And I'm also humbled by how many people are, are choosing to listen and, and, and use their time uh, to listen to to the stories and the content that, uh, that my guests have to share. So make it a great week until we hear you next time uh, here at Up My Hockey. Cheers.